This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. So glad you joined us for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. Um, my name is Tim Hamrich, and I have the pleasure of bringing you these stories every week of ag innovations of the founders, the farmers, the innovators and investors shaping the future of the agriculture industry. And we definitely have one of those for you here on the show today. As you know, if you've been listening a while, we kind of dabbled into talking to investors on how they look at agriculture. We certainly have talked plenty of sustainability. And then we've also started getting into a little bit of direct to consumer. Those three themes are going to all be covered here in today's episode with our guest. You're even going to get a little bit of hemp thrown in there with our guest here today as well. So we have on the show Shonda Warner. Shonda started Chess Ag Full Harvest Partners in 2006. She grew up farmer's daughter. She always considered herself a farm kid. And in fact, when she was young, she even ran her own small grain elevator. This led to a job with Cargill straight out of college trading grain. And eventually Cargill moved her into trading more financial assets. So she became a trader, moved all over the world world worked for Cargill as well as Goldman Sachs, trading things like derivatives, arbitrage, and other various forms of proprietary trading. And that led her to start this asset management company called Chess Ag Full Harvest Partners. And I'm going to let her kind of pick it up where I left off, but I think you're really going to enjoy this. Essentially, what they do is they take institutional money from investors who want exposure to agriculture, want ag as part of their portfolio, and invest it in farms, in agribusinesses, and other companies that, that all contribute to the agricultural value chain. So this is a special treat. I think you're really going to enjoy this. Hey, before we dive in, though, I, I have really been appreciating all of your reviews on the podcast. I did get one that was a bit critical. It was still a five-star review, so I appreciate that. But it said that sometimes the sound quality isn't up to par. And I, and I want to just address that with you all because I don't think I've had a chance to do so yet. I optimize for for quality of guest that I think can best contribute valuable content and information. And in most cases, that means I'm chasing down really busy people. And I usually try to make this as non-invasive of a procedure as I can for them to, to get them comfortable and, and to capture the content. Sometimes that does mean I catch them on the road, as I did Shonda in this case. And sometimes that means that the sound quality is definitely not studio quality, which this episode today probably isn't studio quality, but I, I'm going to continue to optimize for content. I do realize that th my sound quality varies in degree. I am doing what I can to work on that, but we'll continue to try to bring you the best guests and the most value. So I do appreciate the feedback about the sound quality and we'll do everything we can without sacrificing the quality of guest. But here's Shonda. She's going to pick things up when she had been trading for Cargill, then trading for Goldman Sachs. She'd been abroad and she kind of started formulating the ideas that became Chess Ag Full Harvest Partners. I sold a, a stake in a fund of funds business I was a partner of back in 2003. And I was kind of looking at the world and I was really sort of, I don't know, scared of it or I didn't understand it anymore. And I just, all these new, you know, derivatives of derivatives of derivatives sort of worried me. And I found myself thinking the opposite of what I thought in the 80s. And that was, you know, I used to beg my father, 
get out of egg, you work too hard, I'll invest money in hedge funds. And in 2004 and three and four or whatever, I was thinking, oh my God, get out of hedge funds, get out of financial instruments, and I want to go back to ag. And so lots of friends encouraged me. And in 2006, I came back to the United States. I'd been overseas for 22 years, and I decided to set up this agricultural asset management company. And terrible timing on the world's worst marketer. We launched our fund in 2007. And the final investment, it closed in June of 2008, you know, when the world was falling apart. One of the investors was a pension fund of Dow and Union Carbide. And so we had our first institutional client day one. And I think they've been happy investors ever since. And as I spent the next 10 years traveling around the United States, originally we invested in row crop and eventually we invested in permanent crop and we bought some grain elevators and some ancillary businesses along the way. I would notice, you know, how sort of sadly, how crumbling much of rural America was. And back between 2007 and 2012, it was really the go-go years of ag and everything was going up. And in 2012 and 13, we finally had this weather rally and, you know, sort of, and interest rates were falling everywhere and everyone was reaching for yield every place that they could get it. And we were like, whoa, we're launching our second fund, but we're a little worried here because things seem overvalued and yikes. And I think that we were one of the few ag management firms that publicly went out. I think there's still videos of me on TV someplace saying, you know, we're really worried about this and we think the market's going to go down. And sure enough, that's what happened. Little did we ever realize that, you know, the U.S. would be so silly to get into this trade war and and compromise agriculture so badly. I think a lot of people think that once we, quote unquote, win the trade war, I'm not sure I even know what that means anymore. But once we, quote unquote, win the trade war, it will be back to usual. And I'm not so sure it will. And so we continue to, you know, manage agricultural assets and we're landlords, usually in row crop, not always. And we're farmers in a lot of our permanent crop situations. But recently, my, you know, sort of sometimes things become crystal clear. And while I believe in certain cultural practices like no-till and cover crop, and, and I think that those things are cheap and easy to do and they really add value day one. I'm not so sure about a lot of the other stuff going on right now, but was really how could farmers be successful going forward and how could we support rural communities going forward? Because, you know, it's, while it's true, you need fewer people on the actual farm doing the physical work, in, certainly in row crop, you still need vibrant communities to be mechanics and to fix things and to be electricians and to to supply all the ancillary services that are needed to make farming a successful venture. And so we came up with the idea of this crazy little business called Pharmacopoeia Farms, F-A-R-M-C-O-P-I-A, Pharmacopoeia Farms. And that is our new venture into sort of truly vertically integrated farming. And so I guess one of the, the bottom line takeaways after, you know, sort of walking the paths and the communities and the roads and the trails and everything, the fields all these years, is 
that if farmers can take back a little bit of their power from the 57 middlemen that have wedged themselves between the field and someone's plate, that would be a good thing. And so we decided to add some value added processing to some of the things we farm ourselves. And eventually, or soon actually, we will do some value added processing for other farming friends that we know that are doing innovative, sustainable, intelligent things and making a quality product. So that's really the goal of Pharmacopoeia Farms. So questions, I guess. <laughs> Lots of questions. So, so first of all, there's going to be a lot I want to ask more about on Pharmacopoeia Farms because you are definitely speaking my language. Here lately, we started doing a a five-minute farmer segment, we're calling it, where we, we allow farmers to sort of pitch their direct-to-consumer offerings yes. that they sell online. Yes. Good. Well, let, let's go back before we get too far into that, because I'm really excited about that idea. Uh, but so you, you like you, you kind of joked about catching, you know, starting this new business at the worst time on the financial side, but actually probably the best time on the agricultural side because of the bull, the bull run we saw that you just mentioned from 2007 yes. to 2012. Yes. So at that time, you, you said your first sales pitch was, you know, Hey, uh, here's what we think we can get a return on investment, and they didn't like it. But of course, as as the world changed, that became a lot more attractive. What what is the what was the sales pitch at that time to investors in the fund, and has that changed at all with you know, uh, the the commodity cycle kind of evolving? You know, in a way, it hasn't really changed. I think that the the pitch at that time was you should look at agriculture. It's a diversified asset. At that time, I wanted to give a buy signal to everyone in the world and just say, just jump in, damn it, trust me. And, you know, people are like cross their eyes and whatever. Classic, classic investment behavior, by the way, herd behavior. But the pitch really isn't that different today. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I laugh. I think back in 2012 and 13, right when we were closing our second fund and I went to a very, very eminent institutional investor and just talk to them. And they're at the end of the thing, they go, Shonda, you just talked us out of investing. (laughs) Oh, no, no. Put your toe in. Put a little bit of money in here to get to know us. But yeah, I don't think you're going to make a ton of money right now. But we will be diversified still for you. And I think that we are a great investment to preserve capital. Our second fund is I'm so I'm almost more proud of what we've done in that fund than the first fund and and everyone's sort of you know yawning because they're making so much money in commercial real estate and the stock market and everything else right now but I think that you know the market's down commodity markets are down 70% and the land markets are down I don't know 10 to 12 to 15% and you know we're still slightly above water and I think that that underlines the preservation of capital very, very well. Right now, in the last four or five years, people have lost sight of how important preservation of capital is because the market's been screaming away. Personally, we don't see that happening too much more in the future. We're a little bit worried about recession. We're horrified at the trade wars. And I think that agriculture and other investments that are slightly off the beaten path continue to make a great deal of sense. It's very, very hard, especially for large institutions, to truly diversify their portfolios. And I think that 
you know, we offer that diversification. We offer singles and doubles and singles and doubles. And, you know, I've spent my entire 30 plus year career investing in both ag and many other financial instruments, both in the United States and overseas. I think I was one of the first investors in some of the emerging markets on behalf of the Goldman Sachs partners. And so I've seen, I've been in a lot of places and I've seen a lot of things. And I think having a long-term expectation of high single digit returns is just fine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there will come a time when people will wish that, that that's what they've done. But right now it's the, I need to earn, you know, mid double digits and that's just nuts. Hmm. Yeah. Cause it, it may be, but, it may, hmm. it may be possible for the short term, but, but extremely challenging in the long term. In a long, ter- long term. And, you know, investment horizons really shouldn't be two or three years, or even as this bull market has been the longest in history, 10 years. I mean, right now we're looking at half to three quarters of the world's developed economies with negative interest rates. Hmm. What the hell does that imply? And it's very scary to me. Right. Yeah. What about on, what about on the investment selection side? You, you just kind of mentioned earlier that you look at you look at farms, but you've also gone into kind of related ventures as well. What yes. what do those investments look like? You, you also mentioned Pharmacopia Farms, obviously, but w- what kind of possible investments are you looking at, or have you done in the past? So, uh, on behalf of the fund, we're really not mandated to do ag tech. There's a lot of other people that do that much better than we do. On behalf of the fund, it's investments like an elevator, logistics business, or maybe a cover crop seed business, things that opportunities that we see happening from the ground level of our farming activities or our tenants' farming activities. And so that's been a very interesting thing, a very interesting lens from which to view the world. I noticed on your website, you, you talk about incorporating environmental, social, and, and governance factors into the investment strategy. Can you talk a little bit about that and how, how that kind of plays into the whole investment approach? So, I mean, there, there's a number of angles of, of this, and I'm going to be really stinky and naughty here, so sorry about that, but it makes it more interesting. So, we really believe that we need to be good stewards of the earth and the communities in which we're active. And I get in all these, I've been a guest at several of the ag business schools, Kansas State comes to mind, where the students are like, you're evil, you're Goldman Sachs, blah, blah, blah. I said, no, I'm Shonda Warner. And, you know, I I have a century farm and this and that, and I care as much as you do. And then there's sort of a left, you know, throwing things, city, I I call them armchair, you know, like armchair, Whole Foods, shoppers, crowd. And so there's all these people and and it seems more divisive than ever. And so for us, we try and strip away some of that divisiveness and really look at what are good stewardship practices for the earth? What are good stewardship practices for the inputs that we need to continue to farm for the next 50 or 100 years, i.e. water and soil fertility? And how do we help keep communities alive? And the answers aren't necessarily simple black and white answers. They're not necessarily 
you know, sort of what's easy, this, all of these PRI and all of these responsible investing things, yes, we check those boxes, but those are self-administering bodies. You could say whatever you wanted, you know, mm -hmm. so, so what's really important? And for us, it's not necessarily organic versus conventional. I think that what we, the, the, the line that we follow is probably an unwalked line, and that is we want to do the best thing for the soil in the area that we farm. And so for us, for instance, we farm organic hazelnuts in Oregon, and it's not much more expensive to have organic fertilizers. It's not a high input thing to farm. We love hazelnuts. They use 60% less water than pistachios and almonds. Nobody thinks about them. Nobody talks about them. Nobody knows about them. We're so high on hazelnuts, it makes us blue in the face. <laughs> and yet, on the same farms, we may farm, or nearby, we may farm conventional blueberries because blueberries take a huge amount of input. They are very expensive. And the things like, you know, copper soap and, and other organic chemicals are equally as dangerous and we have to apply seven times more of an organic input than we would one conventional input. And in our opinion, the conventional input is kinder to the soil. And so we're not exactly trend followers. <laughs> but, you know, we try and be very intelligent citizens. The, the other thing I think that we do, like just we do it as a course of business and, and, and it's not about checking a box is, you know, I have tried so many things to get people to talk to each other. There are places where we are active farming, where I am the world's biggest pariah. You know, I've lived and I'm a huge pariah still in the state of Mississippi. And I can't overcome some of those obstacles. And, and I've struggled with it for, you know, years now. And, I've, and I don't have an answer. But maybe for us, the best way to, to isn't to preach at people or to act weird or different in a community that has a certain set of cultural norms. It's really to grow things or do things that are exceptional and have my neighbors look over the fence and say, oh, what are you doing over there? And you say, well, we're doing this. Oh, that's really interesting. And so sometimes by doing it, you know, sort of, I guess we think it's the best way to be, to be the change. Yeah. As sort opposed of, to talk about the change. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of a, a pull versus push approach. Yeah, yes. A pull versus push approach seems to work much better. And Farmers are desperate, and they're particularly desperate right now. Oh my God. And so, you know, everyone's looking for something that's going to be differentiating. One of the things that <clears throat> we believe passionately in is seed diversification. And, you know, I think we should be growing more, a wider variety of things on our general farms, even in row cropville in the, mid, in the Midwest and Mid-South and, and, and other row crop areas in the U.S., other than corn, you know, we don't grow that much wheat anymore, but <laughs> corn, beans, et cetera. And so if we can do specialty things by working with, you know, a bourbon maker or whatever, we can grow a crop for someone direct. It gives us a little extra premium to be financially successful, because if you can't be financially sustainable, you got nothing. 
you got no hope of anything else. Hmm. And so if we can, you know, be, do good things and be paid well for doing right, and then help our neighbors do those things, right? That, that if, I, if I felt like I contributed a little bit to that by the time I roll off this planet, I'd be a super happy camper. Absolutely. And, and to be able to execute on that at scale is something that I think is really, really interesting about what you're doing. You know, talk to us sort of about the scale, at the scale you're operating so people have a good sense. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that food is consumed at scale. And while I believe and I support and I love all my friends in Oregon and California and other things, that are doing really innovative things on 40 acres and making a killing, growing ginseng or whatever. So you can be small scale and successful. Really, commercial, large scale farming isn't going to go away, but it needn't be dirty. And so, you know, how do you do it? How do you do it at scale and help a 3,000 acre farmer? One of my favorite people in the world who is a huge inspiration to my heart is this crazy Mississippi dude, Mike Wagner, and he owns two Brooks Farms in Mississippi. And 20 years ago, long before it was fashionable, he basically said, gosh, how I am farming is just stupid, and it is not good for Mother Earth in the long run. And he changed all of his farming practices. He grows specialty rice right in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. He, it's so delicious. It's so nutritious. There are no new hybrid varieties in what he does. And yet he's a large scale, old fashioned Southern planter. And why, you know, why again, do we need these labels? I applaud what he does. You'll probably see two Brooks rice on, you know, sort of marketed by Pharmacopoeia Farms soon. And, you know, he, he, he built a duck hunting camp and he doesn't duck hunt and he gave it to his friends basically so that they put out the food plots to bring in the ducks to poop in the field. So we use less fertilizer on that farm. Mm -hmm. And so all of these really cool old kind of techniques, they don't have to be nutty, crunchy, tiny. Big can be good too. And big can bring a lot of people along with it. Everybody always, I hear, I get in this discussion and I'm such an old curmudgeon about how to bring young people to ag. And, you know, we took on a crop of urban interns this summer and they barely lasted. And I think that they think that they're interested, but they're not really interested in being, you know, outside of urban areas, et cetera, or really cool, beautiful areas. And, you know, working in some of these difficult rural communities with hardcore daily grind up at 5.30 to get the blueberries in type of farming. And so, you know, maybe... Maybe you know, I challenge people and say, you know, you don't have a right to have land, you know, no more than I have a right to own a bank, right? I have to earn my right to own a bank. I have to work hard and make money and do smart things and, and you know, acquire capital. And then maybe I can invest in a business when I'm a little older. So you could go to work for 40 or 50 or $60,000 a year. That's not a bad wage for a college graduate, you know, sure. and do intelligent things on the farm and save your money and start buying some farms. You know, like this, this whole sort of class of expectation, I deserve this. Well, no, you don't. Nobody does. I didn't, you know, and lots of people screw up and have lost their farm for heaven's sakes. <laughs> right. right. It's and, no, there are no guarantees. And, and, 
there's no guarantees and the world's not, you know, everybody doesn't get a gold star. And I think it doesn't help people to be cultured that way. It's, it's hard. You got to work your butt off. Mm-hmm. And, and at least that's been my experience. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't get lucky. I mean, so yeah. So as you think about uh, the the kind of the direct-to-consumer side of things, tell us more about Pharmacopia Farms, about, you know, can we go can we go to the website right now and buy some stuff from you, or what's the sure. vision for how that will look? You can. You can go to the website right now. Uh, so we, we grew hemp last year, uh, very exciting. And so it, it was a high CBD hemp. It wasn't a THC hemp. We were industrial hemp growers and we had a view about the farm bill and it passed in December. And so that is our first product that you can go buy. Some of our CBD things that we make ourselves on the farm. We have a really fancy CO2 extractor and we have a commercial kitchen and and we make salves and balms and tinctures and things that we think are super high quality. We have advisory partners from Texas A&M and other places and PhDs on staff. And so we're sort of getting into it. You will soon, though, be able to, our little logo has a watermark for the hemp products of a hemp leaf, but it will have a watermark of hazelnut leaves when we sell roasted hazelnuts. And we are working on a recipe right now. Connie wants less sugar. I want a little more sugar. Maybe we'll have two flavors of chocolate hazelnut spread that we make from the hazelnuts that we grow on our farm. And so you will begin to see us, you'll probably see hazelnut products in the next few months. And probably by this time next year, we will have a blueberry product or two. Hmm. And at the same time, you'll see us begin to showcase our, basically our friends and family, people that we've gotten to know who we feel are doing exceptional things in exceptional ways. Two Brooks Farms, rice in Mississippi will be probably the first of those that people will be able to either buy in bulk or in retail volume from, from Pharmacopia Farms. Oh, very cool. No. So Shonda, you, you, I mean, you were right about kind of getting, getting into the ag investment uh, when you did, you were right about kind of when the commodity cycle was probably going to turn against it. In my opinion, you're very right about this direct-to-consumer approach. And I've read other places about some of your comments of concerns about the modern state of ag tech right now. So in, in my opinion, you're, you're right a lot. So what, what advice yeah. can you give the rest of us that, that want to also be able to spot these trends and, and maybe make decisions relevant to our businesses? What, what do you do that helps? You know, I think right now, I feel like we live in a world of BS and too much marketing. And so, and and I think we live in a world that has borrowed too much money. And so we live in a world actually awash in debt. And I think that times are coming that are going to be quite difficult. And so my, my advice to young, young people or businesses or whatever is, don't go, you know, don't borrow too much money. Don't, it's like really old grandmother advice. I apologize. But, you know, don't go too far out on the debt scale. Don't get too crazy. Do, do your passion, do what you love, you know, make some amazing product and, and walk, jog, run. Don't think you're going to come out of the box running. 
you know, you probably make too many mistakes and hire the wrong, you know, get the right team together, go slowly, don't, don't borrow a lot of money, everything that hasn't, that hasn't been popular in the last five to 10 years, I guess, is how I think we're going to survive the next 10 years. And I think that people appreciate I, I really believe that the consumer has a growing awareness of food as medicine. And I think that we as farmers need to be able to deliver food. And, and to some extent, it's going to be by going direct at a reasonable price. I can't get 15 or $20 for my jar of, you know, custom hazelnut chocolate Nutella. I think that the markets are just going to get difficult and People aren't going to make that choice on the shelf. So I need to, you know, I need to provide sort of Cadillac food at Chevy prices, if you will, to the extent that I can, high nutritional value in the food that I'm growing. And if I can do that, like buckled in with my head down and, you know, all of us like walking forward and, and whoever else running their businesses that way, they have a chance of long-term success. And Pharmacopia Farms is is a brand that you started from within Chess Ag Full Harvest Partners. Is that right? Yes. And is that the first time you sort of started a a brand from scratch? Because typically yes. you'd be investing. Yes, correct. First huh. time. Very very cool. Well, I, I'm excited to watch it, and hopefully everybody listening. <laughs> We'll check Thank things you. out. Like I said, I couldn't be more bullish on on the concept. And I, yeah. I don't know, talking to you is really validating to me because I have some concerns about the current state of ag tech. Regular listeners on the show are rolling their eyes right now. And I have some really big ideas for what can happen for companies like you that are willing to go customer facing. And so I wish you the best. And I'm excited to maybe check in with you in, in a couple of years to see that yeah. we're both right. Yes. Yeah. Wouldn't that be fun? Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show. I really it's appreciate been a it. Thank you once again to Shonda Warner for being on the show. I hope that got you excited if you're entrepreneurial like me about the opportunities that exist out there. The landscape is constantly changing. The ag economy is constantly changing, but I remain optimistic that there are opportunities for those ambitious and innovative enough to want to solve the real problems that very much still exist in this world. So thank you again to Shonda for being on the show. Thank you also. A special shout out to Connie Bowen, who's a former guest of the Future of Agriculture podcast, who helped make that interview possible. Really appreciate that Connie. And those of you who listen consistently, you know better than anyone else, the types of people that are going to address the content on this show that is going to be most of value. So keep me posted on that. I, In fact, I even created a little form that has helped me sort of keep tabs on potential future guests. Anyway, thanks as always for your time, your attention, your entrepreneurialism, your intellectual curiosity in the future of agriculture. It really is a joy to bring the show every single week. We'll be back next week with another Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Next week.